Man, you may be seated. And go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter four. And I wanna tell you that there is kind of a method to the madness. I know it kind of seems like I'm just kind of randomly going all over the place during the series, but we are talking about why in the world does the world need the church? What is our purpose? What is it that we are to do that a, that a solid biblical ministry must be built upon biblical principles that are understood, that are known, that are loved, and ultimately that must be applied? And so we looked at the number one uh, priority of our ministry that must supersede everything else is that we must seek the glory of God. That is the reason why we do everything that we do. Uh, That is the reason why we uh, do things the way we do. It's not enough. The ends does not justify the means. We must do God's will, God's way, if we're going to glorify God in everything that we do. And we saw that a couple weeks ago. And last week we saw that we cannot glorify ourselves to heaven. We cannot, in fact, in our flesh, we simply cannot glorify God. In fact, the Bible says, whatever does not come from faith is sin. Whatever is not produced from salvation is sin. It only seeks to, uh, it only seeks to store wrath in our hearts apart from Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing we can do of any eternal significance whatsoever. We cannot save ourselves. Only God through his grace enables us to glorify him. Remember what we said, that he who, get, he who gives the grace, what? Gets the glory. He who gives the grace gets a glory. If you, if you let me borrow a million dollars to go buy a fancy mansion and then I boast about how much, how hard I work for it, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? In fact, you'd probably be pretty quick to point out he didn't work for that at all. I gave it to him, Right? And in the same way, he who gives the grace gets the glory. And if we are going to operate as a biblical church, we must understand that we operate only on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because he who gives the grace gets the glory. We saw that last week. And so now the question today is, we looked at God's ultimate provision, and the question is, how does God bring that provision to the world? He he has given Jesus Christ But now, how is that message disseminated into the world? That's what we're gonna look at today because by definition, you and I have not seen the physical Jesus Christ, have we not? I hope you haven't because if you say you have, we might need to have a different conversation. But we have not seen Christ, most of us, except maybe for the exception of Brother Art, were not alive back when he was on the earth. He's not even in here. I just totally wasted that. So anyway, most of us have not been around for that time. We weren't here 2,000 years ago. And even if we were, we were not across the ocean and we do not speak uh, Aramaic, Greek, or Hebrew, the languages that he would have spoke. So we are very far removed from Jesus Christ. And yet here we are. And the question is, what is the plan that God put in place to disseminate that gospel into the world? And that's what we're looking at today. How does the gospel come to the world? And the answer is God's provision for 
ministry that he gives us in Ephesians chapter four, verse seven. So I'm not gonna ask you to stand this morning because that last song was a little lengthy. So I'll just uh, let you remain seated as we read the word of God this morning. Let's just give it the reverence in our hearts that it does require and demand. Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse seven. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of God's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also ascended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's a lot there to cover. And we're not gonna be able, we're really just gonna be able to scratch the surface today. So, so, but the question is, is how does God bring the provision of Christ to the world? And I think you know the answer to this. It is through the, his creation and through the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. It is by the church. This is our goal. This is how we glorify God by bringing the rule of Christ into our lives, into our church, into our families, and to the extent possible, and it's not gonna be uh, completely possible because we're in a fallen world, but to the extent possible, we bring it into our communities as well. This is how, in Revelation, it talks about reigning with Christ. This is what it's talking about is that we are bringing the reign of Christ into our families into our lives, into we're training our children, all of those things. And that is what God has given the church for. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, a very pivotal verse, it says, uh, talking about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then here's what he says. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And by the way, that text comes in the middle of Paul's masterful section on election. And beloved, election is a biblical doctrine, but it is not an excuse to withhold the gospel from someone who is lost. We are to share the gospel to the entire world, amen? And that is the purpose of the church. And Paul had that balance and we need that balance too if we are going to be biblical. God has called and created the church to bring Christ into the hearts of men, into the hearts of women, into the hearts of children. We are the delivery system, if you will. We are the oops truck. Have you ever wondered about having your package delivered by a truck that says, oops, really big on the side of it? You know, UPS, anyway. So we are, we are the, the plan of God. And by the way, there is no other plan. It's the church or die. It's the church or nothing else. 
We are the plan. And so the question is, how do we operate? How do we do that? And that's what this passage is going to tell us. So it is the role of the church to bring Christ into the heart. And how do we do that? We need to look at how the church operates, how the church operates in this passage. And so number one, and we're just gonna say this very quickly because I think we said this last week enough, but the church operates by his grace. The church operates, functions by his grace. In verse seven and eight, it says, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So stop right there and ask ourselves, the measure of Christ's gift, I want you to hold that phrase in your mind for just a moment. What is the measure of the gift? What is the measure of Christ's gift? What is this gift that he's talking about? Well, if you look back in Ephesians, you'll see how Paul is using the word gift. For example, we saw it in uh, chapter three, verse seven. Uh, Actually, we didn't see it, but it's there. Chapter three, verse seven, you'll see Paul talking about the gift that was given to him by God's grace. But I think the verse that we are all familiar with is that if you look back in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, for most of us, just a page flip, it says, for by grace you have been saved by faith or through faith. This is not your doing. It is the gift of God. And that gift that he's referring to is our entire salvation, It does include our initial conversion. We see that in verse eight. But as you go on in verse 10, it also says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the gift of God in salvation is not just initial conversion, but it is the entire life that we live in Christ. It is the entire works that he has given us to do. It is the workmanship that he is making us into. Our entire life from initial faith to the works we do for Christ is his gift to us. Beloved, it is a privilege to stand before you and preach God's word. That is God's gift to me. In fact, I told my Sunday school class this morning, I would rather die than not be able to preach. Just if I can't preach anymore, just kill me because I would rather die than not be able to put me in jail. I'll start a jail ministry. Put me wherever you want. You'll still find me preaching. And whatever gift God has given you, whatever works God has given you to do is an incredible gift of his grace to you. You don't have to be the preacher. You don't have to be this or that. You don't have to be jealous of another's gift. What God has given you is his gift to you and he has given it to you according to the measure of his gift. Grace is given to each of us according to that measure. The church functions by the grace of God and enables us in works and obedience. And where does it come from? It comes from this strange passage in verses eight through 10, which I wish I could go into a lot more detail, but I can't. But we see the means of his grace here. Paul's quoting Psalm 68 here, which is a psalm of the triumph of God, where God arises and brings total victory to his people and conquers all of his enemy. And Paul ascribes this psalm to Christ and the victory of his resurrection. And and there's a lot of neat little things about that psalm that that Paul is bringing to our attention that I I don't have time uh, to, to get into, but it's really neat. And I would encourage you to go back and read Psalm 68 this afternoon in light of this passage. 
But, but I want you to notice verses nine and 10. Here's what he says. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And, and I think the ESV has it right here because most of your translations probably say the lower regions of the earth, and that can be a little confusing, okay? Uh, and I could get into a really technical Greek argument here, but I'm not gonna do that. Let me just say that it's kind of like this. Hi, I want you to meet Roxanne, my wife. What did I just do? I just gave you two, a name and a description of my wife, right? That's all I did. And that's all this verse is doing. What does it mean that he ascended into, about that he first descended into the lower parts, the earth. It's not talking about Jesus going to hell. All right. It's not talking about Jesus going to some paradise or, or some holding cell or, or anything like that. It's talking about his incarnation. It's talking about when he came to earth. And when he came to earth and when he died, and yes, it does include the death and burial, and then he ascended, the one who ascended is far above the heavens that he might fill all things. He ascended far above, filled with what? Filled with his presence and with his gifts. In other words, the church and all those who are part of it are built on the gospel. God has provided everything we need to function as a church in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have everything we need. So what about this phrase, the measure of his gift? Every person in the church, in the church, is given the exact measure of grace they need for their walk in Jesus Christ, for the works that God has given you to do. That's what that's talking about. Whatever works he calls you to do, he gives you the exact measure of grace that you need. If he's called you to do this work, he's gonna give you the measure of grace that you need to do it. Whatever challenge we go through together, whatever ministry he calls our church to take part in, whatever church planting we might do in the future, whatever mission trip we may do, whatever, whatever community outreaches we may do, God is gonna give us exactly the measure of grace we need to bring glory to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in this passage. And so there's a lot more I wanna say about that, but we need to move on, especially since we're running late. So the church functions by his grace. We see that, but now we're gonna see that the church functions by his gifts, by his gifts. Look at verse 11. It says, it says that he gave gifts to men, and now we're gonna skip the aside, go right down to verse 11. It says that, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Now, Paul is gonna point out certain gifted people here. That is not to say that everyone else is left out. And we're gonna see that as we go down through the text. That's not to say that these are the most important. It's not to say any of that, although I think in one case, it probably, that's probably included. It's not to say any of that, but what we're gonna see is that there is an organizing principle to this text. What you're gonna see is basically the, the function, you're gonna see the structure of the church and how it has come about, how God, basically the creation of the church, if you will. And depending on how you wanna count them, there are four or five different gifts that he gives here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and again, there's a question here how to read this, shepherds, pastors, or, and teachers. And these four or five gifts can basically be divided into two categories. Number one, 
the foundational gifts. The foundational gifts. And that is the apostles and the prophets. Now, what do we mean by the apostles? Have you, have you noticed that there's a lot of churches today that their pastor claims to be an apostle? Have you noticed on TV, you've got preachers who claim to be an apostle or you might be driving downtown and see a church, the apostle so-and-so or, or any of that? Who are the apostles? We wanna see how Paul uses that term. We wanna see what Paul is saying here. And we're gonna see that in Ephesians chapter two, verse 20, where he's talking about the building of the church, where he says that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So these are foundational gifts that he gave to the church. God's household is built upon this foundation, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so what is an apostle? Beloved, the apostle, the qualifications for being an apostle are spelled out clearly. There is no room for wiggle room here. In Acts chapter one, verses 21 through 22, in fact, uh, you might want to turn there just to look at this. Acts chapter one, verses 21 and 22. They are replacing Judas, who is dead. And they're asking, okay, we need a 12th member of the apostles. Who will this be? And these are the qualifications that are set out. So one of the men who have accompanied us, for us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Those are the qualifications of an apostle. Now, God made an exception with Paul, that is true, but, did, but Paul did see the resurrected Christ with his physical eyes. And so, and Paul had a special mission. But the, but the qualifications of an apostle are quite clear. They must have accompanied him from his entire ministry. They must have physically seen the resurrected Christ. And I want you to notice that even in this text, out of 120 men, only two are qualified. And only one is selected. So this is not a title to be thrown around. And by the way, along with that, this ministry was accompanied with signs and miracles to verify and authenticate that they were indeed bringing new revelation. They were indeed bringing a new gospel, really an old gospel, but now fulfilled in Christ. All of that was authenticated. And so who are the prophets? Well, you gotta realize that in the early church, there were only 12 apostles, 13, including Paul. And they couldn't be everywhere at once. And so who was going to give the church specific guidance, specific direction when the apostles were not there? God would raise up prophets in those churches to do exactly that. They couldn't be at every church at every Lord's day. The New Testament was not complete. And so who was there to give God specific words to this specific church to give them guidance and direction? And that's why it's foundational because you have the apostles' authority and teaching that inspired the New Testament. And as the New Testament came to completion, it was sufficient for guiding and directing the church. So therefore, you do not need apostles and you do not need prophets anymore because we have the completed word of God in which their authority is delegated. 
all right? So that's why they're foundational. But what about the functional gifts? What about the continuing gifts, if you will? And that's where we find the rest of these, two or three, depending on how you wanna count them. Number one is the evangelist. Now, we all know what an evangelist is, right? Okay, but it might not be exactly what you're thinking of. Who do you think of when you think of an evangelist? Billy Graham, right. You know your history, Billy Sunday, Dwight Moody. You know, uh, maybe some others, F.B. Meyer, Jonathan Edwards. Actually, George Whitfield would probably be a better example. That's what we think of when we think of an evangelist. And that word is simple enough. It's someone who brings the gospel. But there's a nuance to it in the, te- in the New Testament because only two people are called evangelists. They are Timothy and they are Philip. And in both cases, as you look at, your, as you look at their ministries, you should think of them more in terms of what we today would call church planters, missionaries. So this is perfect because we just talked about the New American, uh, New American, the, the North American, I started to say, uh, anyway, North American Mission Board and talking about church planting and talking about when you support our church and a portion of it goes to the North American Mission Board, uh, it is going to do the work of an evangelist. It is going for church planting. It is going for these things. We're not talking about a guy who has 10 suits and 10 sermons and goes on putting on a road show wherever he can. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about church planters here. We are talking about missionaries here. In other words, those who begin churches. And so you have the foundation of the church that's set by the apostles and the prophets. And now you have the beginning of the church, the founding of the church, founded by evangelists. And then how does the church continue under the ministry of shepherds and teachers? See, there's an organizing principle here. There's a building of the church. And so shepherds and teachers, pastors and teachers, these two are grouped together. And so there's a question. Are we talking about two different offices? Should every church have a pastor and a teacher? Or are we talking about one office where they are called pastor teachers? And again, we could get into a lot. This is a big debate and I don't wanna get into it. Let's just let me give you my view, okay? I think there's a reason they're grouped together. That we are talking about pastor teachers, but it is loose enough to understand that not everybody in the church who teaches is a pastor, Okay? So not everyone in the church who teaches is a pastor, but every pastor in the church needs to be a teacher. And so that's what it's talking about. So I think we are here talking about one office. And by the way, notice it's plural. There's no example of a New Testament church that only had one pastor. And throughout most of history, it's the same. You know, I've kind of, you've probably noticed this over the years that I've gone by different titles. Have you noticed that? Like I've given myself different titles. Like uh, I've never been a fan of senior pastor. I, I just don't like that. I, I, I don't know why. I just, I just don't like that. So 
So, uh, so like I've called myself the teaching pastor at one point, and and whenever uh, whenever somebody would ask me, well, I'm the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, and and they would be like, well, what's the teaching pastor? And I I figured, you know, if you have to explain your title, it's probably not a good one. So so I stopped doing that. I really don't like some of these new titles that pastors are giving themselves: pastor of strategic vision and discipleship. If your title doesn't fit on your business card, it's not a good title, okay? I mean, my goodness. I mean, some of these guys have like six words in their title. And it's just like, you know, and and I'll be honest, I love perusing church want ads because I love to see what people are calling themselves nowadays. It's just so funny, some of them. You know, this one guy had had like 14 different titles. I'm like, how did you cram that on your resume? This is crazy. So you know what? In all honesty, I've kind of settled on pastor teacher and I've, and I've done it from this passage. So I, I tell people I'm the pastor teacher of Calvary Baptist Church. By the way, Mark, could you change that on the website? Appreciate it. So, <laughs> so I've kind of I've settled on pastor teacher just from this passage, all right? The point is, whatever it is that I call myself, this is what God has given me to do. And this is how the church continues on through the, through the continuation of the foundational teaching and preaching of the apostles. And we're gonna see next week that what did the church do? They continued in the apostles' teaching. One of the things they did. They did other things, but that's one of the things. And so this is what he's given the church. But what do we do with it? And that comes to verses 12 and 16. And... We're just gonna summarize this. The church is to function toward his goals. Toward his goals. Function by his grace, functions by his gifts, and we function toward his goals. And just very quickly, and you can read all this, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. By the way, remember that word measure was used of each of us back in verse seven, right? And so now you have that measure again. So we're not just talking about four gifts in the church. Everybody is gifted in the church to do something, right? And you're given the exact measure of grace that you need so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, speaking the truth and love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ, so on and so forth. We're gonna talk about this in the coming weeks, so, but each passage is gonna give us kind of a, a perspective, a different aspect of what the church does. That God provides these gifts to the church and God has provided the gift that he's given you to the church to do two things. Number one, for the work of ministry. For the work of ministry. This is where we see that Paul is not limiting the, the gifts of the church just to those four or five that we just saw. But there is a wonderful tapestry. There's a wonderful diversity of gifts that are in the church. And beloved, even as your pastor, there are some things that I do not do well that you do well. 
There are some things that, that you complement one another. E- each and every one of us in this building complements one another with the gifts that God has given us and this beautiful diversity and this beautiful mosaic of how we are to function together as a church. Instead, the goal of the church is that all the saints are to be equipped to express their gifts and their calling in the church practicing the one another's, expressing their gifts and calling in the community, all of those things for the building up of the body of Christ. To build up or the $3 church word for the edification of the church. Each person in the church using their gifts to build up one another. This is the vision of the church that Paul gives us. In fact, Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in his most extended discussion of spiritual gifts. There are some contextual things that you need to understand, but in verses four through seven, the, the, the context is, is clear. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Beloved, each and every one of you is given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life for the good of building up the church. Every one of us. Verses 11 and 12. These are all empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We are the church. And if we function as the church, that means that all of us are using our individual gifts to build up one another in Christ. And so... What are we to do? We're to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that you know how to do that well, so that you know how to do that biblically, so that you're not afraid to run to trouble instead of thinking you have to run away from it. You're, so that we're all equipped to minister the word in one another's lives for the ministry, but then we're also here for the maturity. And we're gonna see this more in coming weeks, but Just a biblical understanding that Paul gives us here. What's it mean? It's not just speaking of initial salvation till we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It certainly includes initial salvation, but it's the body of of Christian truth, deep knowledge that Paul prayed for them to have just above in Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 21. So that we would have biblical understanding, that we would have Christ-likeness in and, and verse 13, that we would each grow to a measure of the statue that is the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, that we would grow up in all aspects into him who is the head into Christ. In loving service that the whole body will properly fit together, held together by each individual part, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every way so that this church is built up in love. So how do we bring Christ to the world? We, 
We bring it by, number one, we must know his grace. We must have his grace. We must know salvation and be in Christ. And then we function by his gifts through the church. A church is a training ground for you to come and learn to use your gifts so that you can then build one another up in the church. And then you can go out and use those gifts in the community so that people will see Christ in you. And that they will come to know Christ as well. And the church is built up, not just numerically, although I believe that's included, but not just numerically, but so that the church is strong. So that we are strong in faith, strong in love, strong in devotion to Christ and to one another. This is the vision of the church. This is the kind of church I wanna be a part of, amen? This is the kind of church I wanna... I want to be. And God has given us everything we need to do just that. Everything. And the gospel of Jesus Christ. So beloved, if you want to be a part of, of, a, of a growing body, if you want to be part of a, of a growing kingdom in Christ, the first thing you must absolutely have is salvation in Jesus Christ. All of it is built upon the gospel. All of it is built upon what he has done for us, that he came and he lived the life that you and I can never live. He lived absolute perfection and righteousness before God. And then he went and he died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty so that you and I can have forgiveness. And then he rose on the third day to bring us new life. And he has ascended into heaven, ruling over heaven and earth at the right hand of the Father and offering himself to each person who would call on him as a rescue from your sin. And if you want to have salvation, there is but one name under heaven by which everyone must be saved, the name Christ Jesus. So if you don't know him, I would love, we're not having a traditional altar call right now because of COVID. I'm hoping we can get back to that uh, here at the end of this month. But I'm gonna be here after the service and there's other men as well who can be here, other ladies who can be here. We would love to talk to you, have a conversation with you and tell you how you can know Christ as your savior. So let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these amazing truths. Lord, we thank you for the church. The church has fallen on hard times. Lord, the church has fallen on times where people believe that they can worship at home, that they don't need the church, that once they have Jesus, the role of the church is over and it's really just optional. We live in times where people would trade the fellowship of your people gathering together for a TV screen, computer screen. And we're being told that that's just as well. And yet, Father, we can't practice the one another's over a screen. We can't practice the, the fellowship over a TV. And I pray you would give us a new needfulness, a new zealousness, not just for you, for your church. Not for the sake of the church itself. Not for my sake. Not for anyone's sake. But Lord, for your sake. 
that your bride will be built up, holy and blameless, ready for you to come and retrieve her to yourself. May we reach the maturity that you long for, that we would be Christ-like both to one another and in the community. Let's sing this together.